0: Hi, this is Sean Smallman. Welcome to Dispatch 7. Today, I'll be interviewing Mija Sanders, who graduated in 2008 with a BA in International Studies with a focus on the Middle East, a minor in Turkish, and a certificate in Contemporary Turkish Studies. Mija did her master's and PhD program at the University of Arizona, where she wrote her dissertation, The Politics of Care and Reverberations of Trauma, Syrian Refugees in Izmir, Turkey. It's a pleasure to talk with her today. Mija, thank you so much for joining me today. You are going to be the first guest who has come onto the podcast to talk about the Middle East. And I'm glad that you're going to be able to talk today about such an important topic. You were awarded a Fulbright Fellowship to conduct research in Turkey. How did you decide to do work with Syrian refugees?
1: Great question. So the short answer is that I took a year off before starting my PhD um, and I decided to get some more job experience. So I applied to Mercy Corps, a major humanitarian organization, and I got a job at their headquarters in Portland uh, on their Middle East team. And then I had an opportunity later in the year to go to Turkey to help start their new Turkey program. So through this opportunity, I got a chance to coordinate a research project with Syrian refugee youth in Gaziantep and work on programming uh, to start up that new initiative. And I made a lot of new friends, especially in the Syrian community. And that really inspired me to Redirect my research topic, and there were a number of reasons to do that. Partly based on the political situation, but I decided a couple of things after living in Gaziantep for four months. Um, one was that I didn't want to be that close to the border. Um, there were a lot of things happening, and and shortly after I left, um, the offices in Gaziantep were evacuated because of ISIS threats, and, and there was too much of a kind of black market um, human smuggling going on in the border region to feel really safe. Um, The other thing was um, I'm vegetarian, and so the cuisine was a little difficult in the southeast. So I decided I'm going to be near a beach, I'm going to have fish, and I'm going to be in a safer place where Syrians are having different kinds of experiences from the borderland. Of course, it ended up being, uh, Izmir ended up being the biggest border crossing, Uh, over a million people crossed through Izmir um, 2015, 2016, um, going to Europe. So that's something that I didn't anticipate at the time. And I had the chance to follow and witness that from a distance um, and then start my fieldwork in 2017. So, that's how I came to that topic.
0: um I'm curious about your your fieldwork how um did you do your field work, and what questions were you trying to answer?
1: Yeah, I love that question because it I have a story to kind of answer it. So, I was interested in resilience programming amongst humanitarian organizations. You know, how were they approaching and imagining uh, refugees to be resilient and self-reliant. And what did that mean in a political context that had caused mass displacement and that wasn't that hadn't changed yet, you know? I really questioned what resilience as an approach meant politically. Personal resilience in a in a political context. So that was that was the question uh that I had in my proposal that was funded. But the week I landed in Turkey, all those programs were forcibly closed by the government and the organization I wanted to work with was kicked out of the country, um, accused of being spies, harboring weapons for the Kurds. I mean, you name it. Um, hundreds of people were out of jobs, um, Syrians and Turks and and expats included. Um, and I met with the program managers in a final meeting um, and they had a wonderful goodbye party for their, their Turkish and Syrian staff. And that was, you know, the program manager being like, good luck with your project. Meet everyone you can in the next hour. I'm filling the country in 24 hours. And by the way, here's a folder full of brochures I've collected of all the programming in the city. Good luck you know, handed me a backpack.
0: Welcome to Turkey.
1: (laughs) Yeah, literally. And here I was with these, you know, crying and staff members and who had forged these amazing connections, you know, over the last year, they had 200 million in funding that was canceled. I mean, we're talking huge numbers. They were some of the main humanitarian aid in, in the city and were handing out Cash were the only organization at the time literally handing out cash door to door. And this was seen as, you know, incredible in the community. And it was done in a very dignified way. So my research questions changed. I decided, given the kind of paranoia about foreign organizations in the city, I was just going to work with Syrians directly. And I made those connections at that party and went through the network spent a lot of time drinking coffee and tea and eating Syrian food building those connections and eventually i narrowed it down to a couple of neighborhoods where i wanted to do work partly based on distance and you know where people weren't doing research already i knew where the journalists were hanging out and the kinds of stories they were getting and i wanted to tell stories about people who were on the periphery of the city, who were blending into neighborhoods, not in a kind of, you know, what journalists were describing as, like, you know, ghetto neighborhoods where people were crammed together. I looked really to the periphery of the city, places that took two hours to get to on in the other direction from where most Syrians were going. So I reformed my questions around the problems that Syrians themselves raised. I started I had to start completely over, you know, getting over my panic and just sit down with people and say, you know, what are your problems? And let them define them as as they wanted to. And so I formed six chapters around the issues that came up from that question. One had to do with humanitarian um, resources um, and kind of the, the impact on people's lives when that organization left the city and how they made do afterwards. Um, another chapter on the kinds of work experiences people had when they no longer had humanitarian aid and what it looked like to pursue you know, survival on their own terms, which I think would have looked very differently from, from what a resilience program um, would have pursued. Uh, another chapter on healthcare and, and women giving birth, um, but also around gender politics and violence in the city, situations that people described to me, violence against women and men in, in different situations,
0: was it a very uh, violent si- violent situation there at the time?
1: No, I would say in general, I mean, it, it, we could say these kind of came out of some of the microaggressions. You know, people just going about their daily lives. Um, one guy um, just shopping in the store and was confused for someone who was spying on a wedding, um, ended up getting chased through the neighborhood, and escaping, but locals knew that Syrians lived in a particular house and stoned the house and terrified the family that was living there. Um, You know, things like that just explode. And that had to do with the discourses of politicians, the way they were talking about Syrians at that time as thieves and, you know, as threats to women and their, you know, honor in public spaces. Um, and likewise, um, Syrian women talked about experiences in medical context when they were giving birth. One woman said her baby was kind of thrown at her and said, we don't want any more babies. We don't need any Syrian babies here. Mm. And I took these stories, you know, with a grain of salt, but I heard them over and over again. So I needed to really do some work to try to understand the context, talk to Turkish doctors about what might be going on and and get a bigger picture. So I I did find some patterns, unfortunately, of of racism in in particular institutions in the city. And I also found further literature to back that up. So these are some of the stories that I found. I don't want to paint their experience entirely negatively. There were also... Really amazing stories about um, when Syrians learned Turkish and and were able to make connections, get jobs in the city, and and find new opportunities. And the last chapter um, was about migration. I couldn't ignore Izmir as a city of migration. And I decided to, you know, since I had been studying birth, giving birth in the city, I focused on what it meant to die in the city especially folks who didn't make the crossing. So I interviewed families who had lost people uh, drowning in the Aegean. And I followed the city's institutions of claiming nameless bodies, um, burying them in the cemetery of the nameless, and displaying photos on this online morgue and, and the impacts of that. Um, So the broader theme of the dissertation really was trauma. It was about a Syrian notion of trauma, so the word sadma, and that connected all the chapters together through affect theory. So that's my, (laughs) I guess that's a longer answer to your question.
0: Well, it's such a difficult environment for you to have been in, and I wonder You know, you were there for quite a bit of time. The focus of your work is trauma. And I wonder about that experience. Did you find talking to people about their trauma so much um, impacting you? And, And how did people view you when you were talking to them about their traumatic experiences?
1: You know, it was really after all the research was done that I even understood that I was talking about trauma, that I could clarify it that way. Um, I never asked anyone about trauma directly. I never formed research questions or interview questions around trauma until I did just a couple follow-up interviews, you know, a year later. So because it was so sensitive, but the stories that people were telling and the way they were talking about trauma directly, you know, I, I couldn't ignore them. And they came up in so many different ways, um, experiences in their resettlement there. So I needed a way to theorize them and, and help un- make sense of uh, the ways they were describing these situations, um, not just as individuals, but in a more collective
0: sense. Were people suspicious of you? I'm trying to picture you in this environment. Obviously, you've talked about how one person was being perceived as a spy. There's a lot of paranoia. How did they view you? Were they suspicious towards you? Did they kind of question who is this person? Or how did different groups view you?
1: Yeah, you know, that's why it was so important to work through a network of people that had already made connections together. So there's one kind of level of suspicion that can happen in the Turkish community because there was a certain level of anti-Americanism developing at this time, especially with Fethullah Gulen being in exile in the U.S., um, Erdogan's kind of anti-American sentiment around that, um, the role of the U.S. in the Middle East. Um, so in the Syrian community, then you have the complexities of which families were pro-Assad, which families were pro-Syrian army, and which families were supporting ISIS. And as it turned out, you know, there were several ISIS sleeper cells in Izmir, in the neighborhoods where I was working. So I had to really trust. I was working with some Syrian university students who had lived there for several years, and I basically put my full trust in them and said, you know, and they had been humanitarian aid workers. So we went back and visited all the families that they had worked with and that they had already built strong connections with. So, you know, I mean, there was one day where my translator said, I'll take you to this one house, but I don't know who he is and he might not like us. (laughs) And I understood you know, but I was like, well, I really want to talk to them because they just had a baby and I want to talk to women who've given birth. Obviously, if if they act like they don't really want to talk to me, you know, I go with that. I I don't visit them again. And, you know, I could say that he probably was really religious and just didn't feel comfortable with, you know, Uh, Western woman coming to his house and interviewing him, which is totally fine. But I never knew, you know, if if there was more in terms of a political affiliation that might, you know. So I just really trusted um, these university students I worked with. Um, I paid them as kind of assistants. They helped me uh, translate. They helped me find families. But eventually the Syrian families themselves would just refer me to their neighbors. And everyone was eager to tell their stories. I would say they had kind of grown tired of telling each other their stories and they wanted someone new to talk to. And also just the dignity that comes with hosting someone rather than being seen as someone that needs something, right? So, you know, I was their their guest and they ha- um shared whatever they whatever they had, you know, sometimes it was elaborate cakes and pastries and coffee and lunches and dinners. But I really tried to stay cognizant of, you know, how appropriate it was to to have a family that might be struggling share so much. I really just went on instinct um what other neighbors said I never had any issues in the Syrian community in terms of really negative experiences um, for being an American. And I think part of that had to do with the fact that there there was a U.S. humanitarian organization there before I came that kind of set the tone in the way that they did their work. But in Turkish communities, I was much more wary. I didn't tell anyone that I was talking to Syrians because of the negative discourses around that. And they might think I'm a spy.
0: (laughs) Can you talk a little bit more about that? How does the Turkish government and different groups talk about Syrians and perceive the refugees?
1: Yeah, so uh, Syrians became highly politicized in Turkey. In fact, the... uh, the Nationalist Opposition Party, uh, Jhp, uh the Republican People's Party, they used Syrians as their primary kind of political platform when they were going up against Erdogan uh, in the 2017 elections. And so these politicians would, you know, stand there on TV and say, we don't want Syrians here anymore. We're going to send them all home. Um, And that was how they were getting support. Of course, you know, Erdogan was the one who initiated this humanitarian mission and opened the doors. And so there's, you know, it might be hard in the U.S. to imagine what that looks like. You can't directly compare um, Erdogan to someone like Trump, for example. I think uh, partly because of this issue that Erdogan was literally saving lives. I mean, according to Syrians I talked to, you know, they may have complaints about lack of support once they get to Turkey, but they all say, well, he saved my life, so what can I say, you know? But then within his own party, you know, there were um, governors and mayors in Turkey who were saying, if any Syrians come to my town, I won't give them a, you know, a drop of water, like, I won't give them any humanitarian assistance. And this is in a country where humanitarian assistance was then, at that time, um, sponsored by 7 billion euro grant from the European Union. And so it was being delivered through the Turkish Red Crescent, you know, on a national level. Um, So you have towns where they're refusing to give aid, even though it, it doesn't cost them anything. That said, on the uh, municipal level, um, there were tensions across Turkey. That was another level of funding that that was strained. And especially for locals, seeing the amount of aid that Syrians were getting, it was very confusing and easy to say, why are they getting all this help when my family is poor too. So that definitely strained things.
0: You know, I, I think in the West, attention has really shifted away from this conflict, but also from the this huge migration. What do you think the situation is like right now in Turkey in some of these communities?
1: Yeah, I have been talking with some friends who are in Izmir in different parts of Turkey. And I would say, just like for Turkish folks, um, things are strained with with COVID. So different kinds of employment are now not happening. (laughs) You know, uh, schools are all online. You know, imagine how hard it is for some of these really um, struggling families to get laptops, you know, um, just like, you know, any other migrant um, community that's um, been impacted by war and recently traveled, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to get these resources. And I think people are just hanging tight. There's a higher degree of stress of uncertainty. And for a lot of families I'm talking to, you know, they're still really wanting to migrate to the US, to Canada, to Europe, anywhere where they can have a greater degree of security um, and hope for education, either for themselves or for their children. So, my hope is that with this new administration, we can see higher levels of um, migration to the US, especially for families that are aspiring to the challenge of taking on a new language, um, living in a new country. So I see um, a lot of older people will stay in Turkey, um, but younger people are ambitious and, and want to create a new future. So
0: Your dissertation won the Eliksa Naf Prize in Migration Studies. What advice would you give to people who are currently writing a dissertation about the writing process?
1: Hmm. I would say, trust yourself and give yourself lots of time. Um, I wrote three different versions of this dissertation. And my advisor likes to joke that, you know, I earned a PhD three times (laughs) because I had to rewrite it so many times um, based on different kinds of feedback. Um, It was really hard to write on such a sensitive topic. So I would say give yourself lots of time, trust your advisor to guide you, and I don't know, tr- trust yourself in, in the writing process. Um, go over your notes, go over your interviews, and if, if there's someone that is giving you advice to kind of go a completely different direction from what you think is right, um, trust yourself and, and keep going.
0: I think that's good advice. Well, thank you so much. I am so grateful. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Dispatch 7. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. And please check back in two weeks for the next episode.